Hey everybody, this is Kevin Islin, and you're listening to another episode of Folk Stories. In Folk Stories, I talk to personalities of interest, and we'll talk about how they got here, what they do, and the lessons and stories they have to share. Today, my guest is Evan Williams, a man of many mouths and talents. During the daytime, Evan works as a design engineer at MSR, Mountain Safety Research, which designs high-performance gear for the outdoors. The outdoors is also where you'll most likely find Evan. Evan is what we would call a sub-elite runner, which basically means he's about as fast as you can be without being sponsored and doing running full-time. To give you an idea, Evan will typically run between 80 and 100 mile-plus weeks, and his personal record for a marathon is 2 hours and 33 minutes. To give you an idea, that's running 26 miles under 6-minute mile pace. That is very fast. We cover a lot of ground in today's talk. We talk about all things running, including training, meal plans, race day rituals, and racing strategies. We'll talk about equipment, different sorts of footwear, why Evan runs in Crocs, and the differences between a heel strike and a forefoot strike. We also talk about depression and or experiences with it and how running has helped. Mental health and depression especially are topics that are very near and dear to me because of personal experiences with it and also seeing close friends of mine go through it. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of stigma attached to this topic, and it's not something that's easy to talk about, especially publicly, which is why I really appreciate Evan's openness to talk to me about it. It's not a problem that we can fix by just talking, but I do hope that these conversations and others like it will help in removing the stigma around this topic, even ever so slightly. So with all that said, I really appreciated this conversation with Evan, and I think you will too. So without any further ado, I give you Evan William. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was deciding on um, where to start in this conversation, and I figured there's a lot of places, but I figure since you're a gunner and I'm a gunner, and something that gunners talk a lot about is gunning, um, I figure we can start there. Like, how's your gunning going? How's your training? It's good. Yeah, and you're right. If uh, if there's anything I do wrong in my daily life balance, it's that uh, I become a little one-dimensional and <laughs> I run too much. Like, that is my transportation to and from work and my exercise and my therapy and everything. So reason uh, Max King put it put it well once. He said that he runs to eat and he eats to run. When he was asked, why do you run? He, was, he said, uh, you know, it's kind of really simple. <laughs> I run to eat and I eat to run, which is a good answer. Um, so uh, running's been going well. Um, I ran, I raced a little too much this summer, um, but it was all right. You so, had a heavy race season. You, you were doing something like one a week or every other week. Yeah, this was uh, not really by design. I had a pretty good schedule for some long ultra marathons on the mountains and uh, some road races here and there, and then I got peer pressured into joining some relay races with friends, which I can't really say no to when there are these, all these rad people you want to hang out with for 24 hours and drive all over the state in the middle of the night. So I did those two, and the combination was a little much. So 
Um, I'm happy to find out now in the fall that those are done, that I haven't completely destroyed all systems in my body, and um, and I've been training well for Marine Corps Marathon, which is in three and a half weeks. When you're deciding on racing, do you plan out the year in advance? Like, do you know what races you're going to compete in, and has this changed? Yeah, sometimes, but primarily the reason to do that, especially in the Northwest, is because races will sell out. Um, it it's a good problem. Um, it's kind of like people complaining that the hiking trails are too busy. It's like, isn't that a good a good thing? People are getting out into the world and the environment. So races are really popular, um, especially the trail races here. You have to plan six months in advance yeah, or beg the race director to get in at the last second. Uh, you know, maybe I could do that for a couple races. I might be fast enough to, but um, I prefer to just follow the rules and sort of not have any special treatment. So. So you talked about uh, the fact that you were running a lot. And I just want to set this in context because that can mean different things to different people. I have a coworker who just started running and, you know, running maybe a mile a day or a mile every week could be running a lot. Right. For you, what is your normal training schedule like? <laughs> um, it, mileage for me is sort of limited by sleep, actually. I get to a certain point and I, I can't... I become too exhausted, and running turns into slow running. Slow running turns into literally walking <laughs> around on normal routes. So, and uh, if I'm able to sleep 10 hours a night, then I can run 100 miles a week, and that would be ideal for me. But um, I don't have the luxury of having 10 hours of time every night to sleep, so it ends up being more like 80 miles when I'm yeah when things are all right. 80 miles, <laughs> you know that's. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You, 55 miles of that are, are work back and forth. It's when, when I would be sitting in a car or a bus or a train or, you know, I've even, I even get kind of mad when I have to bike these days because it's just not my routine anymore. And, um, you know, a bike is sort of an unfamiliar motion to me now. So if you take that same time period and you, and you work it into being running, then it's, I like to say, I don't know, I only run 30 miles a week. I, I commute. 55 miles a week, and I run 30 miles a week. I think running is probably one of the most efficient ways of getting around in the city, especially uh, with traffic and everything else. Yeah. Do you, I notice that you have to pack, and sometimes when we do training runs, like you come with a backpack. Um, I try I, not to because the training runs are so fast, right, with this group, especially Josh Kaplan and such. But, yeah, when I have to. <laughs> I never got used to running with a backpack, which is why, like, I'll run anywhere if it's just by myself. But if I need to, in the moment I need to start carrying something, then I'll bike or do something else. Um, do you find that, did you have to get used to running with a pack or commuting? Yeah, uh, right. There's the, the sweaty back issue. That's number one. You can get over that pretty fast, I think, and it just sort of um, be something you can get used to. But once you're beyond that, the biggest problem is stuff shaking around. Right, and the straps rubbing on your shoulders in the wrong way, etc. So what you eventually sort of said, well, for me, it's a matter of, of convenience um, and simplicity. If I can run places and I always know that if I'm leaving the house, I'm going to take this pack and these shoes and I'm going to be fine wherever I go for the next 12 hours or something, um, then I'm willing to put up with some some uncomfortable um, pieces of backpack running, right? some struggles. So... But the real balance is making the bag tight enough that it doesn't bounce around too much and making it 
loose enough that you can still breathe. And you sort of compromise between the two. So it's slightly uncomfortable and it's slightly difficult to breathe. That's the sweet spot. It's, uh, it sounds to me like um, I did student government when I was in college. And you knew you were doing a good job when nobody was happy with you. <laughs> right. It's like the administration wasn't happy because you were doing too much. The students weren't happy because you were doing too much. You probably low. convince me that most things in life are like that. Yeah. yeah it's, a, right. it's a compromise. <laughs> yeah. Something um, that I think one of the multiple things that I find remarkable about your gunning is that I think, so we gun um, in some of the same crowds and a lot of the people we gun with have been gunning for most of their lives. They've competed in high school, middle school, college, and some even after college. Um, as I understand it, you started gunning rather recently, comparatively speaking. I suppose, I think I was 23 when I started? Well, that's not quite true. The, my running life actually started in sixth grade. Uh, I ran the All-City Mile back in Kalamazoo. I think it was named that, something like that. And back in Kalamazoo in Michigan. And we didn't do any train for it, training for it. Our uh, gym teacher came into the classroom one day and said, all right, we're going to race against all the other elementary schools. Who wants to run the mile? <laughs> all right, yeah, I'll run the mile. Great. Or maybe he volunteered me. I can't remember which one. Um, but it went well. I, I won the race, um, and I've only raced on a track one other time after that. But then I quickly got recruited to run cross-country in middle school. And so I ran one year of cross-country, but it was a tough social social situation. It was the, the popular kid sport. And some people kind of look at me funny when I say that. Like, running cross-country was... What about, you know, soccer? So it was, the, you know, most of the soccer players who were coming to do cross-country as their sort of off-season training. And uh, I wasn't cool. I was nerdy and small and a good runner. But uh, to <laughs> long story short, I was the butt of most of the jokes. So uh, I quit, which was something I wanted to address some point later on in life. After some years of swimming and years of playing ultimate frisbee, um, I came back to running. It must have been, I don't know, eight years or nine years after that. And then I uh, got injured a bunch, learned how to do it right, and then been running since then. So about nine years. First of all, I think middle school is the worst, <laughs> and I don't know why we put children through it. Maybe high school, but see, my strategy in high school is in the sport I picked was swimming, and you can't really get insulted when your head's underwater. So if you can't hear what people are saying, it's not so bad. It makes sense. No, the swim team was wonderful, actually. The Kalamazoo Central um, swimming team was a really wonderful group of 12 guys uh, that really defined my um, teenage years, and it was great. I've learned lessons, been inspired by those guys forever. What do you think uh, changed when you, like the Evan that went into high school before the swim team and then the Evan that emerged after the pool? <laughs> Uh, I grew about nine inches. That was probably the biggest difference. Um, a coach was had a, two coaches that were really tough, um, and they taught me not to complain about too much. And oh, that's a lesson I need to remember more often. It was if something's not right, go fix it. Don't talk about it. Just go go solve the problem. It's uh, or you know, deal with it yourself, and you don't always have to try to find some. Um, coach figure to go solve it for you. So in a way it was instead of getting angry about being teased for being nerdy and small 
uh, it would go like find out something I could talk to whoever it was that was not being nice to me what I could connect with them some way I could connect with them so I ended up um, not taking things for granted and working harder than I, my body physically thought it could um, yeah so this was a, a work ethic uh, challenge and success I guess so, but Swimming is a hard sport. I'm st- still not sure I've reached the same pain threshold in running as I did in swimming. <laughs> I'd like to probably keep it that way. I think uh, swimming, I've never gotten good at swimming. Um, I I can breaststroke. I won't drown if you swim me in the water. But so that's one stroke th- you can probably beat me in. It's, if my body's not built for breaststroke. If I try to do that, I, my, my, I swear my knees are going to fall off I, anyway. Uh, you would crush me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you for saying that. Um, but what was remarkable to me about swimming is just it's a sport where you can exert yourself as much as you can and um, not get injured. Or it was much harder, it seems like, getting injured in swimming than That's in true. running. You get an occasional rotator cuff injury, but it's pretty rare. Usually in, yeah, that might, might happen in master swimming later on. Uh, but uh, by the way, to be a master swimmer, you only have to be done with college. You can be a twenty-three-year-old master swimmer. It's not the same in other sports, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think you end up having the. You're right. You can do miles on miles of swimming every day, and we did. We'd swim five, six miles a day, and get up and do the next same thing the next morning, and have it be a workout every single day, which is not true for running. This is why I got injured a lot when I first started running again. Uh, it was like, hey, it's a sport. I'll do a workout every day. Of course, you get injured. You can't. It's not the same. But for swimming, the danger is, is burnout, really. I think it's a lot of mental. It's either it's keeping up. The calorie input is alarming. Um, and then the mental capacity for not for the sort of monotony and drive of being in the pool for you know, four or five hours a day is just too much for many 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 people so when running do you get the scenery you get um it's better for interacting with the world yeah no i can't say if you were to do open water swimming all the time that might be different but um ah, that gets to be kind of dangerous so pools are good (laughs) you did swimming um for a while and it seems like you know you had some success in there why did you end up uh, switching from swimming to running? So I actually switched from swimming to ultimate frisbee and then ultimate frisbee to running. I went from swimming to frisbee because uh, that's what my friends were doing in college. And it was a a great time for me to learn about um, how other social interactions work that were not necessarily not sports-based. That sounds kind of funny because ultimate frisbee is a sport, though some people think it's not. And I actually prefer to think it's not. I'd rather think of it as a, a social uh, connection or commonality. It's For me, that was a way of, of, a way of life through college. It was uh, partying. Um, it was the same people who I'd go hiking with and then also a bit of an energetic outlet, athletics of of some sort. Um, I had burned out from swimming. That was really the just of it and the, and the gist of it. And that's what everybody, everybody else has gone through too, pretty much. You, um, 
oftentimes when you're done with competitive swimming, you don't ever go back in a pool. And I don't even really enjoy going in like a lake anymore. It's, it's uh, that's the saddest part <laughs> about swimming. So I needed a break. I was done with it. Uh, college um, academics for me were uh, pretty strenuous, and I just needed to not have another uh, drain like that. So changed to something that was more fun, had a better social life. It was great. And then I got three concussions, a couple of crack, uh, fractured ribs, and a torn ACL, and I had to stop playing Frisbee. <laughs> this is <laughs> Those are all from Frisbee, frisbee accidents, yeah. okay. Right. So then, now that transition makes sense, right? No more ground impact, like contact where I'm diving into the ground, so switch to running. You don't have to turn that fast, and you can just run straight forever. Uh, fits me better. But that, that was part of it. And the other part was I was finally ready to uh, go address those demons from middle school where I decided that... Uh, I quit running for the wrong reasons, and I was about to go find out if I could actually do it. So, so when you quit running in middle school, do you think a lot of that was because of what the other kids Yeah, were and I didn't have the tools or I didn't have the courage or simply had no idea how to address it. Uh, I got, yeah, I got completely defeated by um, the teammates. And it, yeah, and the coach really tried his hardest to help me, but it was terrible for, I couldn't do it, so... It's hard. I mean, I think the things that we hear or get said to us at an early age, especially like in middle school, they stuck with you. Um, I, I remember, like in middle school, I was teased for like very stupid reasons that um, yeah, they're, they're never good reasons. And there are things that I need to remind myself today. Like, no, those were just kids that don't know any better. But there's something so foundational, like at that time. So, how was it like when you? got back into running uh so i started to run again when one of my college friends said man we're out of college i've got this job it's fine i don't really love it and i I need some sort of project that i can see some progress for and really care about uh so he asked me to run a half marathon and i started training for it and uh, got injured basically couldn't train for it because i was injured and then went and ran the race anyway and was completely crushed by this half marathon, um, which was, that was the final piece. After I had been defeated by this half marathon, which I had not trained for properly, uh, now I had something that I was going to go target. I was going to go back to that race the next year and show it what's, you know, who's boss. Uh, <laughs> went and found some running friends in the community who taught me how to not get injured and then uh, proceeded from there to come back and uh, take on that challenge. I uh, was determined not to have another wrong reason to quit. It beat me. Um, and from that went well. The next year went well and proceeded from there. I think one of the things that often gets overlooked when people think about running and racing is that so much of it is injury prevention. Um, I remember in my track season um, back in high school, the thing that would end up doing people in is never not training enough because mm-hmm. people trained a lot it's injuring themselves because of training too much and knowing kind of where to stop which is really tricky especially in running because in some ways the sport is all about having pain and pushing past it but now like with injury it's kind of telling you well like you shouldn't ignore this pain but then 
whereas in racing, it's about right. pushing past the pain. And I've always found that really hard to manage, and as a consequence, I've constantly injured myself. And I think I'm finally trying to get to a place that's more workable by talking to me again in six months when I, <laughs> when I don't have plantar fasciitis anymore. I'm wondering, though, for you, like, how have you been able to deal with that, or what are your thoughts about taking care of your body while doing something that is inherently so bringing so much pain to your body? Right. Um, it's a it's a fine line for sure. It, you make the most progress in in performance ability when you're right on that line. You're one step from being injured, and you, well, then you stop, and then you're all of a sudden you, you become way faster in a 5K. And uh, I think I'm not sure I have a great answer to this. I think I have gotten injured enough, uh, and I've spent enough time at it that I've become durable. Which I think is sort of lucky that a lot of times you can come off of an injury and be more susceptible to it happening again. I've been lucky in that every injury I've had after I've had it, I've never gotten it back. I've always been my body's been stronger in that regard, kind of like breaking a bone when it, when it fuses in that spot stronger. Uh, somehow that's worked out. Maybe that won't always be the case for me. Um, I guess luck is a lot of it. Uh, my dad, who is a, is a good runner himself, um, is a big proponent of the undertraining. At least he was. Maybe I've convinced him otherwise now. But I remember probably five years ago, he was you know, telling me all of the great virtues of uh, training half as much as you should for a 5K. <laughs> and then he went and he won his age group in the city. So... <laughs> Uh, fairly convincing, but his point was you should get to the race instead uh, and be able to run it pain-free rather than be injured and supposedly more fit. I've actually just last night I was talking to a friend who uh, his name is Eamon who runs in, ran the Cascade Crest 100 miler and it, he did really well, he did an amazing run and I asked him how his training was and he says actually it was the most boring summer of my life says i didn't i've never run so few miles in in the mountains and trails so i couldn't just go on some five six hour adventure in the mountains because it would make me too tired and this was months before the race so even months before the race he was holding himself back from like so he would not be super fatigued for the race itself so that doesn't necessarily work for a 5k but it's an interesting point nonetheless i think also for these things it just depends on what race you're doing and what sort of yeah. person you are because uh, I think a lot of people have a lot of different ways of handling it for yourself when you are preparing for a race uh, let's take an ultra for example um, like the Chuckanade which is I believe a 50 mile or a 50k a 50k yeah. um, when you're preparing for that race for example what uh, what is your training regimen leading up to that race, uh, like when you start to taper, what do you do in terms of nutrition? Like, yeah, uh, well, I've tried, I tried something new this last year and it didn't really work out. Uh, I thought I keep going back to, um, a quick story about Ryan Hall in which 
he had some incredible marathons, and then I can't remember what the article was. I was or who wrote it. I was, but I was reading this article, and it was just after Ryan had had a race that wasn't quite so great, and the author was theorizing that it was the changes in Ryan's training plan up to the most recent race that had caused him not to race as well, and that he Ryan Hall had failed to realize that he had already landed on the perfect training regimen that he figured it out and that he figured it out and thought he could get faster by improving that training but really he just needed to do that same training again and again for the next race and again for the next race i can see why you wouldn't do that you think i have to do something different in order to have a different time so he did do something different and he did get a different time which wasn't as good as his previous one so i did a very similar thing i learned the same lesson for the last check and uh i decided that i was going to uh, cut out all of the recovery mileage pretty much and keep the workouts and long runs all the way through up to the race. Uh, essentially very little taper, at least no taper in intensity, a little bit of taper in distance. Uh, and, and for people who aren't familiar, tapering is the process of gradually decreasing your mileage. And right, and supposedly resting and getting stronger. So I skipped all of that, and then I, I got to the race and started up the first hill at mile seven or something and uh, knew it was going to be going very poorly from that point. <laughs> Two steps onto that hill, uh, my legs were completely like numb with fatigue. <laughs> and uh, I made it through the race. It was fine, but that was a big struggle. So I wouldn't do that. I would go back to what I've done before, um, which is essentially marathon training, three weeks of taper, which is reducing my mileage by 70% down to like 40% of what I would normally run uh, the week up to the week before the race and eat a little bit more food, um, cut out some of the fast stuff and just trust that you're not going to lose fitness even though you're running less. On the day of the race, what, um, what do you have for breakfast? <laughs> I used to have a breakfast sandwich. Um, I, I, at the start of every race, every marathon or longer, I would eat a breakfast sandwich at the start line five minutes before the race started. The theory was that my stomach would, would not feel comfortable running faster than I should be running. So it was a pace regulator. And that also, I would digest this food and it would be useful to me some hours down the road or trail. That was, I think, pretty true, but as I've, I've sort of evolved the strategy some, and now I agree with most of the world in that just a lot of carbohydrates are a better idea. I probably don't need to eat an egg at the starting line or strips of bacon or, or even an avocado. Um, the bread is somewhat useful, but better off would be a handful of gummy bears, which is what I do now. So you have a handful of gummy bears. This is um, five minutes before the race? And yeah, before. right. Well, we're kind of milling around and getting last-second instructions and so on and so forth. And then uh, during the race itself, I'll carry a uh, uh, drink mix I think recently I've been uh, drinking Roctane, which is, is nice. Tailwind is also good. Uh, the, the idea of chewing even goo or uh, gummy bears when trying to run 10 to you know, 15 miles per hour, is, it's uh, stressful and <laughs> doesn't always go so well. Um, there's no reason. You're going to drink water anyway. You might as well combine the two into a fluid that gives you the same you know, the hydration and the carbohydrates that you need. And excuse me if I go into the details, because I'm really fascinated by this, is um, when you drink, 
Do you drink when you feel like it, or do you have a regimen, like every 30 minutes, every five miles? How do you pace that out? So I usually do some math on the amount of calories for the amount of time I'm going to be running. But that's it. That's as far as it goes. So I make sure I carry that number of calories with me. And I tend to be on the higher end of what people's rules of thumb are. Uh, that's fine. Maybe it's not necessary, but I don't want to run out of energy. I'd rather have too much. Um, other than that, no, I just drink when I'm thirsty. Or in this case, because the calories are in the drink, I'll either drink when I'm thirsty or when I'm hungry. And I trust the body and the body's alarm systems to get it right. Uh, I don't think you really need to drink before you're thirsty or eat before you're hungry, um, especially if you train that way. If, you're, if your body is, is never expecting to be hungry, then because you, you've always tried to uh, preempt the, the urge, then you probably should do the same during a race. But I, I think it's better just to listen to our systems. We're, you know, our bodies know more about itself or ourselves than we do, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It is. I think listening to your body or listening to my own body is something I've been working on a lot for the past many years. Um, and that applies like during the race, but also just like regularly, like how I'm feeling. I think my body will have told me like, Kevin, you should, probably shouldn't do this. Or Kevin, you're feeling a little down today. Or Kevin, like this is bad. And most of the times I just ignore it. And a lot of times it's been in retrospect, a bad idea. Um, that sounds right. Um, do, you, do you ever actually talk to yourself during your race? It's interesting because I was going to ask you that. <laughs> For myself, during a race, sometimes it depends a lot on the race. Um, there's usually a point I get, especially in these ultra marathons, where you're kind of at the edge of exhaustion. You're just holding on. You're not really paying attention to anything. And usually I cycle through like different songs or just the chorus of different songs because that's all I remember from those songs anyways. <laughs> and so maybe the same line from Waving Flag uh, <laughs> and on will be playing in my head for an hour plus. Um, sometimes I will tell myself, um, just reminding myself like why I'm doing this. It's like, you, uh, you know, like put in all this training, like you train harder than anyone else. So it's been different depending on where I'm at and what race I'm doing. Hmm. Uh, and flipping that question to yeah. you, like, what is your <laughs> mental talk when you're doing a race? Um, I, don't, I don't tend to talk to myself a ton, but I definitely have the same song problem. But I, I mostly uh, attribute that to that I, I, don't, I don't know the lyrics to any song. Maybe, I have the same problem. Maybe Happy Birthday, which is interesting because I've played flute since second grade. I still play flute. I can remember a melody or a chord structure forever but words just crush me i don't understand so i might get a refrain or i might just get just the melody humming in my head uh hopefully it's a good song sometimes it is um usually before a race uh i will listen to specifically john hopkins who is a really good electronic musician from london or near london if anybody um is curious about looking up my favorite music john hopkins all of his songs every single one <laughs> but specifically open eye signal I think I've listened to that song uh, probably at least twice before every race in the last five years. So that's, uh, you know, four or five hundred times and more even when I'm not racing. 
uh, it's a great. You know, there aren't any lyrics in that song, but it's the it's a beautiful repetitive drive that sort of gets at the soul of and the right meter, especially for long races. Uh, I try to try to seed the, my brain with something that I can tolerate for a long time. But the reason why I asked about talking to yourself is I was told once I asked a running friend early on <clears throat> uh, in Massachusetts where I started running. Uh, how do you decide how fast to go for whatever for the rest of the race? If you're in the middle of a 10K and you have four miles to go, that's not the start anymore, but you're also not close to the finish, and you really don't know how fast to go. And same sense is when you're hungry or thirsty, you should drink or eat. Uh, the theory is that your body knows how fast to go. You might have to let your brain ask your body what the, how fast that is. So... My friend responded, he said, just ask your body. I said, well, how do you do that? He goes, hey, body, how fast should I go? I <laughs> think you just said it while we were running. It was really hilarious. I started laughing. After I stopped laughing, I did the same thing, and then I, it was exactly the right pace. You have to trust that just by saying it, you sort of broken past a little bit more of the subconscious response and really internalized it, and your legs will do what they need to. Your legs know how far four miles is and uh, will take care of the pace if you, you you can either talk yourself in your head or out loud if you want but maybe you should ask other people how fast they should go to you while you're racing that'd be pretty funny I think that's a great idea I, I'm definitely going to try that actually <laughs> there's this great story about um, I think ML Zapotec who is one of the greatest long distance gunner Czech and he yeah, set yeah. the Olympic uh, he got the Olympic gold medal in the marathon, like the 10K and the 5K, and I think he was the only person to do that. Right. And this he did is a really non-traditional running form, if I remember correctly. He did. Uh, His arms and legs were everywhere. So. And he just looked like he was in so much pain. Right. And yeah. some people asked him about it, and, he, and his response was, well, if running was about beauty, then I would focus <laughs> on that, but it's not. Um, but specifically, um, I... It was said that during the marathon, it was actually his first time doing the marathon. He was doing it because a teammate who was supposed to do it couldn't, and he felt like he could. And he was keeping pace with the uh, world record holder at the time. It was a British guy. I don't remember his name. And they were going out really fast. But since he had never run a marathon before, he asked this British guy, you know, like, how's the pace? Like, I feel like we're going a little fast. <laughs> and they were leading the pack at this point. And then... Uh, the but it was a genuine question, right? It was not a genuine just, question. Because sometimes you get people <laughs> trying to psych you out. Exactly. But the, so the British uh, world record holder did not took offense to this. And okay. just because, you know, this is your first time running a marathon, what do you know? And so instead he responded with, no, I think we're actually going below pace. <laughs> and so at that point, Subotech sped up <laughs> and um, went to win the gold medal. And the British runner didn't finish the race. <laughs> so that's one outcome of asking someone else for the basic. I, yeah, I think that goes beyond physics. That's karma. Exactly. <laughs> it was. It's a beautiful story, and he's just an incredible runner. Um, one thing you mentioned is listening to certain songs before you race. Do you have any other rituals? It's like you mentioned gummy bears, music. I tend to double tie my shoelace just because <laughs> I remember like what coach in high school would always say, like you can't control a lot of things. But the one thing you can do is your, your shoelace. So if ever I catch you with a shoelace untied during a race, like that is working <laughs> completely on you. Um, that's true. That's all your fault. Yeah, that's pretty funny. A friend of mine, uh, Derek, lives here in Seattle, ran a half marathon. I think he probably ran 12 miles of the race with his shoe untied. 
Fortunately, his racing flats were a little too tight, so they stayed on anyway. But it was remarkable. One reason why I didn't stop that day to retie them was uh, that it was about 28 degrees at most, and uh, we didn't really have proper handwear, so our hands were too cold to tie the shoelaces. So unless he had actually stopped and gotten like a, someone in the in the crowd to tie a shoe, he was stuck. <laughs> um, pre-race rituals uh, regarding shoes, I like. I really don't like running shoes unless I'm running. Even when I am running, they're sort of because I have to, because otherwise I might cut my feet somehow on a sharp something or you know, get a blister or, or who knows. So I like my shoes to be as comfortable as possible, and racing shoes tend to not be comfortable. I will put them on, and then I will go uh, jog purposely with the shoes untied for a couple strides or just walk around for five or ten minutes until everything about the shoe that is not is loose, right? So everything the shoe that could possibly be lined up with the anatomy of my foot is. And only then will I tie my shoe. And, it, and I've never had a problem with, sh- with shoes during races. <laughs> do you double knot or do you tie I do knots? double knot. For a race, I double knot. For, a, for training runs, I never do. I get, yeah, I get really angry at, when I get home and I'm tired from a run and it takes me 10 minutes to get my shoe off. So I'll, I will single knot um, the shoes. They don't actually come undone that often. But in a race, yeah, I won't take any chances. It's just extra paranoia. Paranoia, yeah. So let's see. Uh, I don't tie my shoes until I've walked around with them not tied. The night before a race, I almost always sleep in whatever I'm going to race in. And it actually is sort of the same motivation. Uh, one day I was going to wear a racing singlet and i didn't always i started running and like most of us we just wear t-shirts like reasonable human beings and then for some reason we want to cut the sleeves off because we think it's faster i guess i'm not sure why really the singlet still doesn't make a ton of sense to me but the singlet i was given was a little bit small and i thought of wearing this singlet that was too tight while i'm trying to run fast was terrible I decided I would sleep in the singlet so that it would stretch to the shape of my body, same as the shoes. And then I had a great race, and I've been doing that ever since. So that one's probably more superstitious than anything. And then the the, um, the last thing I can think of is that uh, I don't know why it works. I sort of pride myself on being a fairly objective scientist. I'm an engineer, design engineer, and I studied physics in undergrad. And I really believe that pickle juice can solve cramp issues. And I don't know why, and I think the world doesn't really know why yet either, not completely. And it solves a cramp issue fast. Like, within a minute, the cramp is gone. So I will drink pickle juice before the race, right before the race starts, and then usually carry a small amount with me um, for later on if I, if I need it. Uh, I wish someone could explain to me exactly why it works. My only point there is that if it is a placebo effect, I hope it keeps working, and I never figure out <laughs> that it shouldn't work. You're not the first person to mention the pickle juice thing. No, it's becoming, it's catching on a bit, which is cool. Uh, it's strange. It's like a nervous system fatigue that's different. The one thing that scares me about it is why is your body cramping in the first place? Is it trying to protect you from doing something? And it's yet another pain signal that we're ignoring that that could be. So then if you go and obliterate that that uh, signal or system in your body and reset it so now you can keep going, what will happen next? What What is the thing it was protecting? Is it a muscle pull or who knows? 
That's actually a really good point because I think anybody that has gone even casually will have at some point encountered these terrible things known as cramps. <laughs> and I've never really questioned, you know, why they happen. I just figure it's one of those things that the body does. Um, and it seems like, I mean, running in general, um, it's a lot about the body sending pain, telling you to not do it, and you, for the most part, ignoring your body. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that gets it. I mean, the basics of why we even try to run fast, but I don't know. Something that I think you do know a lot about is footwear. Okay. And first of all, what are your opinions about footwear? Uh, there's a lot of marketing in footwear. There are so many gizmos and technologies, and most of it is just so a company can make more money. Uh, I, I hate that that is the, the cold, hard truth, but I really think that's a lot of it. Um, I don't believe our footwear these days is any better, like the, the, big, the traditional footwear. I don't think it's any better than it was in the 70s. Uh, and, right, so the next question be, should be then, well, what footwear should you run in? And I studied, and for my master's degree, I studied biomechanical engineering. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this in a laboratory, a lot of time thinking about this running miles, probably too much to the point where I'm exhausted about thinking of it. I have a, a couple piece of it, pieces of advice. Um, really, one's a realization. The first one's just an, an opinion. Um, I believe that the body is really good at adapting to almost anything you throw at it. If we were to wear wooden clogs and try to run, I bet you'd have people running uh, under 70 minutes for a half marathon in wooden clogs. It would take a while. It would take a lot of injuries and maybe a lot of clogs. But eventually, your body will adapt to whatever you throw at it, the forces, the actual pathways and the torques on your joints and your tendons and your ligaments will actually move and realign and slide over different parts of your bones. And it takes like a couple of years for your body to adapt to these things, but the soft tissues in your body will adapt and so will your, your, your muscles, your bones, everything. So whatever you run in, uh, I would just not change it too fast. Don't make any abrupt changes. I wear more minimal footwear. If I was to wear a shoe with a big gel heel, I would be injured in a couple days. And to add to the point of not changing things too fast, in college, I remember when they first came out with Vibrams, right. I thought, oh, neat, I should try that out. I yeah. got some Vibrams. I ran with them for two months. Um, you're supposed to break into them. I just started running with them right. and doing my typical mileage. Right. So, I, so did everybody. Exactly. <laughs> and then I have plantar fasciitis for a year. So yeah. Yeah. definitely don't Your, your plantar fascia can take it. Just not, it can't, it's not like a muscle, which has a ton of blood supply and nutrients to rebuild. Uh, your fascia doesn't. Your connective tissue does not. It, it will restructure and rebuild, but uh, over a much longer time period. Not, let's say muscles would be two weeks before you're, you're not sore anymore doing something, a new motion. For tendons and ligaments, it's like a year or two years before everything is realigned again. Uh, so whatever you're wearing, if you don't have any injuries, just keep doing that. <laughs> Unless you have some other compelling reason to change, and then do it slowly, very slowly. The other uh, part that's also closely related to footwear is the how your foot strikes the ground. Mm -hmm. um, there's the 
heel strike versus midfoot. And recently, um, especially uh, I think with literature like Born to Run and everything else, this idea that well, like people are actually much more natural doing a midfoot strike without a shoe, and so you should switch to that. Yep. But then um, that has also caused a lot of injuries because people are so used to heel striking with traditional shoes. What are your thoughts on this entire issue? Um, right. It's, uh, it's, I don't think one's faster than the other, and I think you've already gotten at the heart of the issue, which is that you can, if you've been most of us who have then tried to, even if you wear the same shoe and you try to forefoot strike versus heel strike, if you haven't done it in two decades, three decades, and basically since you got your first pair of athletic shoes, then you're not going to be good at it on day one or day two, and you'll probably get injured from that as well. Um, biomechanically, for the, from an efficiency standpoint, I don't think one is better than the other. The only reason I might suggest forefoot is, is better is... Uh, that it is that it depends less on the condition of the shoe. If you have a shoe that has a big heel padding and you run on it and you crush this foam and material down to, to the point where it's not as cushioning anymore, now you have a different shoe and you've, you've gotten to, the, and it's hard to realize that point, so now you might start to get injured. You'll hear some runners talk about, oh, when I get to 400 miles on my, my specific shoe, then I can feel my, my left knee starts to hurt at mile 4.2. And like, that's their flag. Like, okay, get new shoes. So you have to stay up on your shoe technology or shoe, your, your shoe iteration a little, a little bit more carefully if you're a heel striker. Because you are really depending on the properties of the foam in your shoe, how elastic it is and how dampening it is. If you're running on your forefeet, you, you've changed, you changed your stride dramatically by involving your ankle a lot more. Your ankle and the bones, even before your ankle joint, the lower bones in your foot are a shock absorber, starting with the fascia. <laughs> and it's sort of this like little art, strong archway trampoline that takes a little bit of the, for, the impact off of the, the strike. And then your ankle rotates in several different planes and does a little bit more. And then you get up to your knee, which is not straight when it hits, and it absorbs a little impact, and it goes all the way up your body, right? So you, each joint has you asking a little bit more of your joints and muscles when you're running on your forefeet. If your shoe wears out, who cares? Because you, you're relying on the shock absorbing, absorbing abilities of your anatomy more than you are the shoe. Uh, and as a follow-up to that, uh, I have run in Lunas. That would be my minimal shoe of choice. And I run the same exact workout in racing flats, with, which have a compressible foam, and both forefoot strike, and I am 10 seconds a mile faster in a racing flat. And there's, a, there's one single reason for that, which is when your body hits the ground, if the footwear is not taking up any of the energy, then your body has to do it. Something in your body has to eat that energy, which would otherwise turn into heat in the foam or the whatever it is your shoe's made out of. It's going to be your muscles. If your muscles didn't do it, then your body would go straight through the concrete. <laughs> so to stop your body from going through the concrete, your legs will resist you hitting and it slows your body down as you're impacting the ground, and that requires calories. That same exact energy expenditure then translates into less energy and power output that you could spend moving forward on your push-off, on the, your, your toe-off on the next cycle. Um, for me, it's about 10 seconds a mile. They can really add up, especially if you're doing an ultra. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, Percentage-wise, it's still very small, but yeah. I mean, in an ultra, do you really care if you were two minutes slower or four hours? That's a fair point. When you're racing or you're training, like, do you have different shoes for different occasions? Do you have a different shoe for trail running versus go running? Yeah, that's um, I do, and but I think that there's uh, most road running shoes are fine for trail running. I think when we run into problems with traction, it's more of a choice of where to put your foot, or if it's really muddy, then it makes sense to wear cleats of some sort. Or, but most of the time, it, um, a road running shoe is plenty capable, sort of like a car that's meant to be driven in the city can drive on a dirt road just fine most dirt roads unless there's a huge pothole and then you buy a specific shoe or car for that um, and consider driving somewhere else because it doesn't sound like that go to yeah well, really teams. what's be- really what's better is you just park the car there and start your run <laughs> it'll be fine i want to shoe in one more question about the shoes sure. uh, which is you you got in clocks which you're the only person i know personally that got some clocks could you tell us a little bit about how that started and why you do this yeah, maybe you won't. Maybe I won't be in the next couple of years. I, I think it is growing slowly, though. I don't, don't really know. I've never seen anybody else. I've never physically seen anybody else do this. And clocks for people who aren't familiar. I don't know if this is an accurate way of describing it, but they're very minimalist. I think of them almost as sandals. Yeah, with, with sandals is not bad. Uh, most people will connect with them as gardening shoes. So if you're running and you happen to see that your neighbors have some weeds and dandelions, you're you're perfect. You you can stop and take that dandelion out, and you have exactly the right footwear for it. <laughs> um, they're made out of something that is similar. It's proprietary. I don't, they won't tell the world what it is. They call it cross light. Um, that's the material, and it's it, most people say it's very similar to EVA foam, which is what's in your shoe anyway. Uh, but there, it's only one material. And it seems to be durable enough that it stands up to, well, I don't know, at least 400 miles so far. <laughs> so how did you get started with them? Uh, I went out to do a workout, and I got three steps out of my house in the shoes, the racing shoes that I wanted to wear. And I immediately turned around and said, no, this, my feet don't, they're just uncomfortable. My, my calves hurt too much. I was just too tired from previous runs earlier in the week. So I said, "All right, no, screw it. I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna go, go home." So I walked the three steps back to my door, and like zero, zero miles today, which doesn't happen often. So when I really don't feel good after three or four steps, um, I try to respect that. Uh, I got back to the house and I thought, "I'll at least check my mail." And so I put on my gardening shoes, <laughs> Crocs, to go check the mail. And walked out to get the mail. I was like, "Oh man, my feet feel so much better." I'm not sure if it was that they were cooler because of the holes in the Crocs or, uh, I don't know, They're, they don't fit very tight, so maybe that was a piece of it too. They actually feet wobble around a little bit on the inside. And I took the mail back inside and thought, well, my feet feel fine with these on. I'll just do, I'll, I'll just go up and down the street in Crocs to see how that goes. So I do this and I run a couple, couple miles around the neighborhood um, at a casual pace. And they didn't come off. The little strap keeps them on just to, just barely enough. And that wasn't so bad. And, and I maybe it was just sort of this euphoric moment of looking kind of ridiculous. Maybe And so my brain flipped over from being fatigued and not wanting to run to, yeah, let's just go do, let's go do a workout. And I, I had my phone with me 
which is pretty rare for me running too, but I took a picture of myself running with Crocs and I sent it to a friend who, who I know doesn't like Crocs. And he immediately uh, st- started making fun of me and uh, threatening not to talk to me anymore, joking, of course, if I continued to wear Crocs. And so then it was on. Now I had a then challenge. Had now it. I had something to prove. So I went out and did this tempo workout, which I had planned, and worked my pace all the way down to uh, 5.02 for the last mile. And they stayed on. It was incredible. So from that point, I knew I could pretty much run any pace that I wanted to in Crocs. Um, and if they generally cost $20 or less and they're going to last 400 miles, you can't do better economically. Uh, and they're pretty fun. It, in some way, they take... They make um, me a little less serious about running too, which is always a good thing. If I'm kind of laughing at myself and I look ridiculous, I tend to be. That's when I'm best. I've noticed that about you, actually. So <laughs> that I look ridiculous. <laughs> uh, not that you look ridiculous. Not, that's not something I would tell you to your face. But <laughs> that's that, fair. I'd probably take that as a compliment. And that you don't take things. At least you don't appear to take things so seriously. I think, especially for people running at your level, which I would say it's just short of being elite is that people can take this as a really heavy like, load. Like, I need to hit these times. I need to perform at this grade. And, like, racing becomes... I know for me in high school, actually, um, because I had some early success in track, that <clears throat> racing very soon became this very um, heavy burden of, like, I have to perform at a certain level. Um, but when I see you run, when I see you race, when I see you do workouts... You seem to take things in a very almost relaxed sort of stride, and I'm yeah, wondering if some you might say not disciplined that. enough. <clears throat> or I should be more serious about it. I've tried. No, I think it's mostly just learned from experience. When I have tried to be super serious about some sort of athletic thing, uh, it and this I guess this translates outside translates outside of athletics also. It doesn't go well. I'm, I'm less creative. I perform worse. Um, so I stopped doing that and realized that if I could be laughing or smiling because I'm wearing tights that look like a pint glass beer, gold shiny tights for no reason at six in the morning, (laughs) chasing my friends around like union, uh, if that makes me happy, then I'll run faster Then I should just keep doing that over and over and over again. Um, and another aspect is that the... I think externally I look a lot happier than I am. And if if I – negativity and um, smiling is contagious So in both ways. So if, you, if I'm mad and complaining, then that's contagious. If I'm smiling, that's contagious. It is a constant struggle and effort for me to, to be positive about the, the world. A lot of times there's just so many hardships that I can't afford for running to be also negative. <laughs> So whether I like it or not, I can sometimes change my mood internally if externally I look ridiculous and I'm having fun, which is what I try to do. You definitely always look like you're having a blast. (laughs) So that's good. And uh, if it means that if I could be faster by taking it more seriously, then it wouldn't be worth it to me. Yeah. It makes sense. I think, though, it's much easier said than done. I think, like during high school when I was going through a season there was there was nothing in myself that said you should put so much pressure on yourself that you can't sleep before a race it's like no you should take this easy but like saying that was kind of like 
throwing a paper airplane into a hurricane. Like, it didn't really do anything. <laughs> so I'm wondering, sure. how do you manage? It's one thing to say, I'm not going to take myself seriously, but it's another way to actually do it. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I guess what you wear is a good place to start. Uh, if you really do look put together and formal, um, then I think physical appearance is a, is a good starting point. Um, put on some tie-dye. These are lessons I learned from the, the Frisbee team back at Middlebury College. It was uh, gender norms go right out the window. If you want to wear a skirt, yeah, go for it. I didn't know it's cooler. It's, your your legs are cooler, so you're faster. Sure, why not? <laughs> Try something ridiculous, um, and and it, you quickly will either laugh at yourself or someone will laugh at you, and then uh, you just join in the fun, keep laughing. Um, it also helps to to run with people who aren't so critical of you and just accept you for who you are. So you find your best friends who run and that's a, a that's a good way to do it as well. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you there. I'm not sure. I think that's a great answer. It's starting off with something, with the things that you can change, like what you wear instead of how you feel. Yeah, so I'm sure there are more there, right? You can choose what you wear. It could also, if I could eat um, a, a piece of bread in the morning and that piece of bread made me ridiculous and smiley, that'd be great too. <laughs> That's another choice. I guess you can you kind of you are what you, you are you are what you eat, right? That's the theory. It is, and if I recently found this out, well, this is going to go on air, but whatever. That eating beets, um, beets are good. Beets are great. Every time I eat beets, I wonder why I don't eat more beets. Oh yeah, beets are amazing. Uh, my girlfriend, she's Ukrainian, and so she's been making borscht, which has oh yeah, that's uh, good. It's this rich <laughs> like soup with beets, and it's delicious. Except then when you're taking. A dump. <laughs> you, the first time I, I thought I was sick with something because you got to eat golden beets. It turns <laughs> a very. It, it looks like your clocks yeah, essentially, yeah. which are red. striking red yeah. color. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Something um, you mentioned is that one of the reasons that you are relaxed and this because like gunning is something that is a positive thing in your life when. There are other things that might not be. Um, and I found for myself, like, running, I think I originally started running kind of as an accident. Like, the cross-country team was um, offering muffins if you, like, raised, and I did it and I continued doing it. But uh, for me, running has also definitely been a lot of a lifeline in the sense of doing bad times, maybe, like, doing bouts of depression, doing going through different episodes of life, it's always something that I could turn to and something to do. And, you know, you mentioned that there are certain things that you go through that are not all that great. And if you uh, don't mind, like, talking about it. Yeah, sure. Uh, Boy, if I understood why and what, then that would help me a lot. (laughs) But I don't. And uh, either it's something genetic genetic that I have, or uh, another theory could be that two of the concussions I had in college were, were pretty bad. There's a lot of evidence that says that goes a long way to correlate in correlation to depression later. Um, that could very well be also, but it's uh, it's a, a general trap to fall into 
negativity in the world or like the world is less bright <laughs> for myself and many people who struggle with mental health health um, running primarily in that regard is a way that I discovered that if I could make my body hurt as much as my brain then it seemed tolerable it didn't hurt less but it was like okay I guess it's going to be fine it's just okay <laughs> I, I can't remember the last time someone has asked me he said, well, how are you doing today? And I said, uh, wonderful, great, awesome. I think I've said, okay, probably 200,000 times in a row. <laughs> in a row, I'll take that. That's better than, than alternative answers. And um, has this, have you always felt this way, or was this something that happened after the concussions? Or? Um, I've certainly gotten worse, perhaps started in middle school or high school, and it's definitely worse in college and uh, I, I tell myself that it's gotten worse after concussions, but I don't really know. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it, it's a, a struggle. Running can provide um, endorphins, which a lot of us know, and make you give you time to meditate and think about things, and uh, that helps somewhat too. But the bigger challenge that I've realized recently is in the same way that you can get accustomed to the amount of coffee you drink, and so then you drink another cup of coffee or the people, the amount of beer you drink, and then you drink another beer. And then you, the effects become less and less over time. The running is sort of a similar effect for me. So maybe answering the other questions is like, how do you decide how much to run? It's like, well, more than I did last week, because now if I run the same as I did last week, I don't feel that great still mentally. Uh, you know, that, I'm going to get myself into a world of trouble if I keep down that path. Um, and I'm not sure what will happen if I have to run 120 mile weeks. So, so when I was in college um, for my sophomore year, um, sophomore year was probably one of the worst years of my life um, because of a bunch of things. But that was the year when I really struggled with depression. And so for me, it was not really getting more because I didn't have time because I was trying to do three majors and a bunch of other things, but just doing really intense workouts every day. Um, and not having a break. And because this idea that if I could push my body and if I could, you know, just feel that physical pain, then it took away from that mental pain. And, of course, the obvious thing happened where I got injured and I couldn't run, and then that made things worse. Um, and I think, well, a couple of things. is like one is that you had mentioned um, when before we talked that, you know, some of this talk might be uh, talking about depression. And I know for myself, like being able to talk about depression is something that was very hard for me to do. And in our culture, there's definitely like a stigma against anything that's mental health related. Right. And so I'm wondering for you, when was it that you became comfortable, or maybe not comfortable, but just being able to talk about it? I mean, you're talking about it yeah. now. No, sure. That's good. And that really, oh man, that really gets into the darkness of it all. Um, I was sort of, I was forced, forced to talk about it because I didn't have another option. It's, uh, what was it before, after I started running? I think it was about the same time, uh, around 23. Um, around, I, uh, more or less, no, more, I, I did. I set off into the mountains and with the idea of never coming back. And it was after I broke up with a college girlfriend and it's my first major breakup and it was the most devastating thing I could ever feel I remember talking to a therapist later and telling him it's like 
the objective part of my brain knows this is ridiculous. Like there are so there's so much poverty and hunger and greed in the world and all these bad things and war. Like what could be worse than war and civil war and like family feuds and you know how can I possibly be this you know crushed by a college breakup um, and and have it be some and justified in any way and. His, his answer was, well, it's the most painful thing that you have experienced. So I had no spectrum for pain that was large enough to encompass these, all these other hardships because whether I would like to admit it or not, I've had a fairly privileged lifestyle. Um, and for the family I was born into and my demographics and so forth. So I hadn't really experienced anything that was that painful. And the other part was that I would never have I would had no confidence that I would ever be able to feel like I was in love again. And those two pieces together sort of explain the devastating spiral that it, I took and uh, anyway, set off into the Adirondacks and hoped to never come back. And uh, I don't really remember actually all of this of why I ended up, ended up coming back, but it, I wound up in an emergency room and uh, then shortly after uh, with a psychiatrist, and then shortly after with a psychologist, and then a um, behavioral health uh, worker who I talked to for the next three years and tried to sort some things out. So that's one way to break the ice. It's not the best way. Mm. Uh, you're right. It was If I could have spoken to someone about it even a day before, it would have been a world better. But uh, as it was, I, I had medical reasons why I, there was no way I could possibly not talk to anymore. Well, um, I know that I and I'm sure a lot of other people are glad that you did come back and that you're here and of everything yeah. that you've done since then. Good to remember. So I, I remember at that time period thinking, it's like, okay, I made it through that episode. Now I understand. I've scared myself to such an extent that it, I, I didn't really trust my own actions anymore and thought if I run, if I have some sort of challenge I have to overcome, I'm not sure I could actually do it anymore. I almost didn't. And for the next seven years, I had this number in my head thinking, there's no way I'm going to make it to 30 years old. I have far too much sadness. I'm just not going to make it. It's it's not possible. I made it to 30 and I also had this goal. I'm 32 now. I also had this goal at the same time through the running career that I would run some marathon in under 240, so in the 230s by the time I was 30. And there were weeks and months on end where that was the only motivation. That was the only reason why I woke up the next day. I was thinking, it's like, well, I'm, I, could, I could let everything else go. I could say goodbye to my friends and my job and everything, but I, I promised myself that I was going to commit to this stupid number <laughs> and it was going to make it and I was going to prove all those middle schoolers wrong and everybody and I was going to run somewhere in the 230s so it's something like six months before I turned 30 I ran 238 it was awesome nice congratulations <laughs> thanks and thank you for sharing that yeah sure you're welcome it's hard to find a place to transition from this but I guess when you were up until 30 this idea of okay I want to beat the 240 time in the marathon. At, now you've done that, and you've made it past 30. And, and at this point, like when you look ahead, what do you see? I've been wondering that a lot lately. Um, I've, I've been searching for that 
for two and a half years now. <laughs> We're like, okay, I did it. I made it. I made it to this point. What now? What do I do? And, and part of it is, um, I guess, sharing that story with people to make a difference in their lives. I think that would be the most important thing. I actually don't really care if I get faster anymore. <laughs> if I can help people use running as a motivation to um, to make it through life, then that, that has got to be the most important thing. Um, so it's really about giving to the running community. It It is such a... It, for, it needed to be a selfish thing for me for seven years. And by, by definition of the challenge I had set out for myself, I had to to be self-absorbed and get out there and run every day for myself to get towards that goal and make it and achieve what I didn't think was possible. And then I've tried to start figuring out how I could uh, share that with other people and help give back to the running community, which is a tough thing, right? You, a lot of people will put headphones in and they're running shoes and they'll go run. And it's like, who's benefiting from that besides yourself? <laughs> it's a really important thing. I did it, right? I still do it sometimes. Um, so I uh, helped my family start a brewery, and at the same time, I uh, made a group run that runs every Monday, and it's five miles. And the whole crux of the brewery is that it's this this cool family, kids, dogs oriented um, community space in Columbia City, uh, Seattle that uh, that everybody can come to, and it's warm and welcoming, and it. Um, the beer is special, so my brother makes it. Some of the recipes are mine. And the run that I have created there is of the same sort. It's You don't have to be a member of any club. You just have to show up. You don't even have to drink beer, though I suggest it. <laughs> it's good beer. Uh, through that, and um, I've organized um, the cross-country team for the Seattle Running Club for a couple years. Uh, I, I used to do this. And so mostly about giving back. Half the time, I try to figure out how I can give back. And the other half the time, I try to figure out how to answer this same question more eloquently. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure. Some days, I'm out there, recently out there, lost in my mind. I think it's a question that a lot of us struggle with. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with friends and others about this topic. And I don't quite know what that answer is for myself either. But something, I think a common pattern I've identified in what that's going to be is that it's it has to be something that at least for myself it's something that's bigger than you that's you know whether that be your gunning community or your family um it's a goal that's bigger than your single person because sometimes you wake up in the morning and you feel like your single person is very small and so the the goal that you at least something that works for me is something bigger than that um, and then you mentioned uh, on the note about sadness before and, you know, experiencing a lot of sadness. And I think one quote, the way I've heard it said, it, it, and I really like this, is that you can think of sadness as digging a well. And yeah. as you experience more sadness, you dig that well deeper. But when the well is really deep, uh, that is also your capacity to experience joy oh, and good. being able to empathize. Because um, I think, you know, being at those low points can... I think is it's really hard to know what that feels like and without going there. And it's not a place I would recommend anybody go to, but like once you're there, it's really hard to see certain things and not empathize. Yeah, that's true. And that drives me 
in my career also. Um, uh, I work on many global health projects. Actually, some of them involve wells, physical wells. <laughs> it's very motivating. Um, to, to be able to go, the first, the first thing you have to do when trying to solve a global health issue is really internalize and empathize with what the community is going through. And the simplicity of, or the thing, the, the clean water that we take for granted, the simplicity of opening up a tap or a little valve and clean water comes out is not a thing. And realizing how painful it is to be dehydrated and thirsty or exhausted every single day is a big piece of it. So um, and even though I haven't had the, that experience with clean water specifically, uh, I've I guess by your quote, I've dug a, a large well to the point where I can try to understand what's going on in the, the personal struggles. So, yeah, and I, I think this is a good point to transition to um, my closing questions. Okay, sure. And yeah. my first question I ask is, what is something that has inspired you lately? This could be a book, um, a story you've heard, something someone's done, something from your own life. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm pretty bad at paying attention to the news, so the answer is not going to be a famous person or icon of any sorts. Well, uh, that's probably – I don't – mental yeah, health is, is a complicated space, but one sure. thing I will say for sure is not paying attention to the news can is be a, a good very thing. good thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll keep doing that then, not paying attention. Um, the, uh, the person that comes to mind is a friend of mine who I've just reconnected with. His name is Simon Torres. Or, which would translate to uh, Simon Tower <laughs> in in Spanish. I met him in Chile uh, ten years ago, about maybe eleven, and uh, he's the youngest of a large family. I believe twelve siblings, uh, and I've never met someone who has taken so little for granted and who's given so much, even though his family's resources were never exorbitant. Um, so I'll get to go back and visit him this this December, and one of the reasons why I'm going uh, is because I've asked myself that question recently. So who does inspire me? What does inspire me to go uh, wake up every day, not even run, just be, would just exist every day? And it's uh, people like Simone um, who really really helped me do that. So r- right now, in particular, um, externally I seem pretty much all right, but I'm struggling a fair amount this would be a good time to go uh hang out with the person who uh is most inspiring to me so uh the reason why he's so inspiring is is that he put put himself worked a part-time job or rather a full-time job and put himself through through undergrad and grad school to go uh chase his dream of being a world traveler and he ended up as uh, one of the the finest um, astrophysicists in Chile uh, researching. And uh, it had been every couple of years, you know, when I'm, when I'm managing things correctly, I talk to him frequently, but sometimes years would go by on my end where it's my fault and I never, I didn't, I just was checked out. And so pretty recently I said, oh, hey, yeah, Simon, uh, I've been, uh, been thinking about you a lot lately and I think maybe I should come back to Chile and visit. And he, it was just like I had, had said goodbye to him yesterday. He was so nice and gracious, and he's now um, married, and he has a kid, and I'm excited to go meet his family. And remember that this is this is one 
person in the world who I have never heard complain about anything. Um, and it reminds me of the lessons I was supposed to learn back when I was a swimmer <laughs> to not complain and just work hard, fix the problem. Uh, and I think I need a reminder. So that's uh, uh, that's him, Simone. Yeah. Sometimes lessons take a couple of times around before they really stick it. That's true. And that sounds really lovely. So I'm really glad that you're going to be able to do that. Um, my next question, and this is something we might have already covered now with our, our talks, but what is something unusual or something that most people might not know about you? Uh, boy, you know, I was thinking about this question too. I was going to answer opera singing, and the, the reason why nobody knows about me is because I don't do it. Well, that's a good joke mm. um, or a bad joke. Let's see, uh, <laughs> I'll give you a better answer. I have a hovercraft pilot's license. I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> you can't get them; they exist. I think technically you can drive hovercrafts uh, without a license if they're small enough. Um, but before I moved to Seattle, I was in the oceanography field, and uh, my job was as close as you can get to James Bond without being James Bond. I was a research scuba diver and drove jet skis with fancy equipment. And one of those vehicles that I got to fix, work on, and drive was a hovercraft. Man, pretty fun. <laughs> really dangerous too. Um, I don't recommend it, at least not without the best health insurance coverage in the world. That's amazing. That's you know, flying cars in the <laughs> precursor right there. My next question, what is a belief or principle that you live your life to? Um, I would go back to this uh, same friend of mine who, is, who instructed that you ask your body how fast you should go for the rest of the race. He has said a lot, his name's Steve, and there are many things that Steve says, or Steveisms, however you want to put it, but one of the things that he really sticks to is drink more smoothies. You really ask yourself that question. If you had a smoothie right now, wouldn't your life get better? You probably would feel uh, healthier, and you would have more energy. It, it can't be a bad experience, right? I actually started about a year ago doing a spinach banana smoothie every morning. I figure it's a good way to get in some vitamins and easy to make, and I can attest that it's fantastic. No regrets. <laughs> That's a good one. As uh, The other Steve-isms, that one I really like is uh, is not letting racing get in, get in the way of your training. Um, so there are three big ones, right? There's drink more smoothies. Yeah, call them up. You know, Steve, not feeling that good. Race didn't go that well. How many smoothies are you drinking? Like one a day. No, not enough. It doesn't matter if you said five a day. No, not enough. Drink more, drink more <laughs> So yeah, drink your blueberry smoothies and you'll be okay. And the other one, yeah, don't let racing get in the way of your training. That's a little more traditional, right? Don't race too much. And then the last one is that Nordic skiing is way more fun than running. <laughs> <laughs> which actually has some hidden meaning in there, which is uh, don't just run, right? Use your fitness for other things. You'd be, uh, take a break. Um, have some fun. Especially Steve if you're sounds like a very wise person. So, yeah, so Steve gets a lot of credit for where I am. My, my last question before I let you go, and this is open-ended. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to cover now or hi highlight? Um, no, you're a great interviewer. We <laughs> think we took care of most of it. Oh, I did have a question. You mentioned uh, for you, and it was you mentioned that whatever you're doing, you shouldn't take it so seriously that you can't sleep the night before or something along those lines. Even when I'm trying not to take running in life seriously, which is most of the time, sometimes I guess I'm not successful, 
I still can almost never sleep the night before a race. And my the only uh, way I can deal with this in my head is that someone once told me it's the sleep two nights before that matters. And that always seems to be fine. So I generally try not to fix this problem. But my question or the topic is how do you sleep the night before a race? Sleeping the night before it's tough. And I remember in high school, I couldn't do that. So, like, I got so wound up about the race that I would sleep very little um, or just have terrible sleep. Um, I think where I am now, and I think it's mostly just as a consequence of recovering from all these chronic injuries, is that I haven't, first, I've been out of running for a while, and then I've been running on the side, but not really competing. Mm -hmm. And I'm only recently started getting back into racing and doing that very slowly. So doing trail runs and trail races where I remember, like my body remembers how bad it felt to take these things so seriously that I couldn't sleep and I had trouble eating, that for whatever reason, now I'm able to sleep. I mean, I still get nervous and I still think about it, but I'm able to sleep through the night. And I think it's just having gone through that experience of having it really bad and needing to take a few years off that my body still remembers that and I can, I've internalized it a little bit. Sure. I guess that makes sense. That, that made me realize that there are probably two different reasons, at least in my mind, why you might not sleep. One of them is you're stressed or worried. The other one is you're really excited. And uh, maybe this one about being excited is okay. If I can't sleep before a race, it's, you know, generally because I just want to wake up and do it because it sounds like so much fun. Yeah, once the race starts, that's <laughs> great. That's that everything right. before that. But I wonder, I would feel better if I slept more. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'll have to stop sleeping in my singlets that are too small. <laughs> Maybe. Or maybe get a bigger singlet. And <laughs> you can't switch up too many things at once, but one thing at a time. That's true. Well, Evan, in the meantime, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And I've really enjoyed it. So thanks. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again with a few more things before you go. First of all, if this episode inspired you to run, which... I don't see why talks about excruciating pain and injury wouldn't, then an easy way to get started is to look for local gunning groups around you, such as the one that Evan runs in Columbia City, if you happen to be in the area. Another easy way is to find a friend and start together and train for something like a half marathon or even a 5K or a 10K. The important thing is to not do too much too fast or you will end up like yours truly. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support this show, you can do so by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or suggestions for people you would like to hear or just to say hi, you can email me at feedback at folkstories.org or tweet at me at KevinS8. That's all for now. Until next time, hope you have some good conversations.